0: asked me to cover for him this evening. I spent a number of weeks wondering, what am I going to preach on? I have no idea. (laughs) Rob has it easy. He has a book of the Bible. He's walking through it, so he's good. Every week, he's got his passage. But me, I got to pick something. And it's interesting. I was sitting in a Barnes & Noble, of all places, picked up a book by Dane Ortlund. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly, and in the first chapter, he deals with passage this evening, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. And he said a number of things in that chapter that struck me, and so I decided then I I knew what I was going to preach on. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 is our passage this evening. But before we read, I want you to do me a favor. Look back on your day-to-day life, how you live, day in, day out. It's all the same. Ask yourself a question. How easy is it for you to forgive people around you. And I don't even mean like the people you see once in a while, the people you see a couple times a week, the people you see maybe even every day. I mean like the people you go home to at night. Because for me, I find that some of the easiest people in the world to forgive, like some of the easiest people I can just say, eh, it's all good, let it go, water under the bridge, it's the people I can get away from when I go home. As great as my family is, it's my own fault. I have trouble forgiving them the most. So think about maybe your children, maybe your siblings, maybe your spouse, the people you cannot get away from when you go to bed at night. You close your eyes, they're still there. You open your eyes in the morning, they're still there. How easy is it for you to forgive them? Maybe a better question is, how many times do they have to offend you before you start holding a grudge? Ten? Five? For some of us, maybe it's just one. <laughs> then you go to church at some point during the week, or you hear somebody talk about, oh, well, you know, Jesus said, forgive your brother 70 times 7, and there you go. If you're anything like me, you immediately pull out a calculator, like, okay, how many times do I got to go through this? <laughs> how easy is it for us to forgive people around us? It's easy to start holding a grudge, but how easy is it for us to just let it go? Some people are naturally patient with, others it's a little bit harder and if we're honest maybe they have a right to hold a grudge against us we find it hard to forgive them maybe they find it hard to forgive us too and at the end of the day maybe it can all kind of be summed up in fine i'll forgive them if i have to Jesus tells me I have to go through this, right? He told the parable about the servant who was forgiven a great debt and then held the small debt against the other servant. He said, "70 times 7 you must forgive your brother." Fine. If I have to, I will forgive my brother. Since it's expected of me, I will do it. I want to save face, I want to still look good. I will do it. And so we kind of lie to ourselves and convince ourselves that we've convinced our bro- or that we've forgiven our brother when really we're still harboring that grudge in our heart. And maybe if we're lucky, it kind of goes away after a while. But it doesn't really go away. We just forget about it. And eventually, when the next thing comes up, it comes right back to the surface. Like burying a hatchet and, as the song says, leaving the handle sticking out. How easy is it for us to forgive? How easy is it for others to forgive us? And if we're not careful as we think about this, we might start to wonder, is Jesus the same way? I mean, it's difficult for me to forgive other people. I'm not going to stand here and lie to you all about that. Yeah, I have trouble sometimes. And I know for sure it's difficult for some people to forgive me. For all people, probably. I'm not always at peace with those around me. And that's as much my fault as anyone else's. So do they hold grudges? Are they really angry with me and just putting on a show? What's going on? In their heart, what do they feel? In their heart, what's really there? And again, if we're not careful, we might start to think of Jesus as kind of like us. because we have a tendency to make God in our own image. So we might start to think that, oh my gosh, Jesus isn't going to accept it this time. Surely this time he's had enough. Surely this time... That's the last one. And it's all going to be over. And, and that feeling right there is why I've loved this passage. and I've loved studying it. Because in all honesty, why wouldn't Jesus be reluctant to forgive us? I'm reluctant to forgive other people. Why wouldn't Jesus be reluctant to forgive me? Surely I've offended Jesus infinitely more than anyone on this earth has offended me. And that right there, that feeling right there is why I've loved this passage so much. So, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. In verse 25, Jesus begins a prayer. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then in verse 27, he begins to make statements. All things have been handed over to me. No one knows the Son except the Father, etc. And then in verse 28... He makes a call to people around him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Immediately we look at this passage and we see the first three words, come to And what I want you to note about that, what's striking about that passage, about just those three words, Jesus, God Almighty, veiled in human flesh, the one person who has the right to actually hold grudges because he was sinless, the one person who has the right to say, no, I will not forgive you. There will be no reconciliation. You cannot come to me. The one person who actually has that right removes all obstacles and he says, no, come to me. I welcome you. Please come to me. And it's not just an invitation, it's actually a command. He says, Come to me. It's an imperative. Come to me. That's incredible. That Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect sinless man, who alone has the right to hold grudges, who alone has the right to execute justice, what does he say? Of all your sins, Of all the things that could possibly be standing between you and Christ, all the things that stand before you, mocking you, saying, what? Do you think you will come to Christ? Do you think Christ will accept you? Jesus takes all of those things, and he removes them, and he clears the path. So there's nothing left for you to do. He simply says, come to me. Come to me. It's an invitation And it's a command. And every obstacle that could be standing in our way is immediately removed with just those three words. Again, imagine living with yourself. Imagine the amount of times someone has to overlook a mistake you made. Imagine the amount of times someone has to turn the other cheek, someone has to forgive you, someone has to let bygones be bygones, bury the hatchet. Imagine the amount of times someone has to forgive you. Imagine how difficult it would be to live with you. I know how difficult it must be to live with me. And yet Jesus says, come to me. Sinners in need of mercy, deserving of hell, Jesus simply says, come to me. And every obstacle is removed in that instant. Immediately, nothing can keep us from Christ. He says, come to me. Every barrier has been removed. The obstacles have been torn down. Nothing stands in the way between you and Christ. Nothing. He goes on in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He makes it a point to only invite certain people. So he's removed every obstacle. Sure. Yes, absolutely. The pathway has been cleared. Yes, nothing stands in between us and Christ. But this invitation, this command, goes out to a certain few people, a select number of people. And who is it? Those who labor and are heavy laden. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I would say that everyone who labors and is heavy laden shares four Common characteristics i 'll list them out and then we 're going to go to Isaiah chapter six to see what I mean first recognition of sin, second recognition of god 's holiness, third, a broken heart, and fourth, meekness before god so if you have your, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter six there 's a number of passages I could have turned to I wanted to go to job forty two as well I wanted to go to uh, psalm fifty one but In the end, I landed on Isaiah chapter 6, because I think it's a passage that we're all familiar with. It's a passage we've heard a dozen times, and I find that the ones we hear the most, the ones we're the most familiar with, are the ones we have no idea what we're talking about when we bring them up. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'll try not to spend too long in this passage, because we have a lot we need to get back to in Matthew. But, verse 5 I want to dwell on primarily. Remember those four things I said. Recognition of sin, recognition of God's holiness, a broken heart, and meekness before God. Isaiah displays all four of those things in just verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. And here it is. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognizes he's a sinner. Isaiah recognizes that his lips, which of course he's not just referring to his lips. He's not even primarily referring to his lips. He's referring to his entire body, his soul, everything about him, down to the smallest molecule. Everything is tainted by sin body and soul. He says, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Immediately, Isaiah sees the king and again, the train of his robe fills the temple. The seraphim are standing before him. With two wings, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet and with two, they fly. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. God of hosts and what does Isaiah see he sees the Lord the God of hosts these cherubim can't even gaze upon him and he's immediately thrust into his throne room and what's particularly striking is he would have known the story about Moses who begged to see God's face he said Lord just let me see your face just once and that will be enough for me and the Lord says no you cannot see my face But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by. And as I pass by, you can gaze upon my back. And even that leaves Moses physically altered for a time. He comes down from the mountain. His face is glowing, and the Israelites are terrified of him. He has to wear a veil. Isaiah is immediately put into God's throne room, and the first thing he recognizes is his own depravity. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his sin. And then the very next phrase, he recognizes God's holiness. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The first few words, woe is me, I am undone, he calls a curse upon himself. Why? Because he recognizes two things. Number one, that he's a sinner. Number two, that God is holy. And as he's standing in the midst of God's presence, as he's standing in God's throne room, he recognizes the depth of his sin. He recognized how great his sin really is. And in contrast, he recognizes how holy God actually is. And he realizes that such a great sinner cannot possibly stand before such a holy God. He says, woe is me, I am undone, literally calling a curse upon himself. To come apart at the seams, literally to die. Woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He recognizes his own sin, and he recognizes God's holiness. Then third, meekness before God. And this is really encompassed, these next two things are really encompassed in the entirety of verse 5. The recognition of his own sin, the recognition of God's holiness, led him to be meek before God. Literally led him to call down a curse upon himself. Woe is me, I am undone. Again, to come apart at the seams. Literally to call death down upon himself. He recognizes his own sin, he recognizes God's holiness, and he realizes he cannot stand. He's meek before God. And finally, his heart breaks over his sin. And again, this is more encompassed in the entirety of verse 5. He knows he can't stand before God. He knows he's a sinner in need of a Savior. He knows his only hope is to cry out to God for grace and mercy. And sure enough, what do we see what happens in verse 6? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for Isaiah recognized his sin, God's holiness. His heart broke for his sin, and he was meek before God. And in that moment, Isaiah was cleansed. His sin was atoned for. That right there is what it means to labor and be heavy laden. It means that you recognize the depths of your own sin. It means that you recognize God's holiness. And that these two things are at odds with one another. A holy God cannot turn his back on sin. A holy God cannot coexist with filthy sinners. As one theologian said, I'd call us all worms, but that would be an insult to worms. God cannot live with us. Or more accurately, perhaps, we cannot live with God. Because God is holy and we are not, and that is the fundamental problem with all of mankind. And if you do not recognize your sin, if you do not recognize God's holiness, if your heart is not breaking for your sin, and you are not then meek before God, you are not laboring and heavy laden. And this invitation does not go out to you. The prerequisite for Jesus' invitation, for Jesus' command to come to him, is you must labor and be heavy laden. But is this something you do? By no means. Absolutely not. See, in our natural state, of course, Man cannot repent of his sin. Man cannot even want what is holy and righteous in, his, in God. He cannot even want to pursue God. So what then is the answer? Does Jesus give out this command to people who are laboring and heavy laden, knowing very well that there is no one who does that? No, of course not. But we know that repentance, this laboring, this heavy ladenness, this stumbling under the load that's been placed upon our back that we cannot bear, a recognition of our sin and a recognition of God's holiness only comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So today, if you are feeling this burden, feeling labored, feeling heavy laden, Christ here invites you, come to me. And what does he promise? Back to Matthew chapter 11. And what does he promise to those who come to him? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So to labor, to labor is to recognize your sins, to recognize God's holiness, it's to have your heart breaking because of your sin, and it's to be meek before God. And what does he say will happen? What if you come to him? What if you come to him? What does he promise you? Rest. This is what Jesus means by he who labors. That you recognize sin, that you recognize God's holiness, that your heart is breaking, and that you are meek before God. What does he promise you? He promised rests. But why does he only offer this to people who are laboring and heavy laden? That's the question that got me. Why not just blanket invitation? Everyone, just come to me. I'll command all of you. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Does God not desire that all would be saved? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It's a very specific request. It's a very specific prerequisite. Labor and heavy laden. Why just the people who labor and are heavy laden? Because look at what he promises. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He only offers this promise to those who labor because only those who labor have any interest in resting. When I was young, it was not uncommon for me to get the chore of mowing the lawn, especially in summer. And I'll be honest, I remember it as way worse than it actually was. Like, looking back on it, I was out there for like six hours in 110 degree heat, sweating. It was not all that bad. It was probably 90 degrees on a bad day, and I was maybe out there for 45 minutes. But, you know, time, exaggeration, all that, whatever. But the point is, when I finally finished up, I would come inside... And the best thing was just a glass, cold glass of ice water and to jump in the pool and cool off and to just crash on the couch, lay down, and just rest. Because I'd been laboring for what felt like hours out in the sun and finally I could come in and just rest. But flip that. Flip that on its head. If I was mowing the lawn, that meant somebody in the house wasn't. So what interest did they have in a cold drink of water? Or to jump in the pool? Or to just lay down on the couch? Nothing they'd been doing the whole time while I was out there. Again, I'm remembering it as worse than it was, I'm sure. But the point is, I was out there in the heat, I was out there laboring, I was out there pushing the lawnmower around, and what did I get for my reward? I enjoyed that rest. But I was really the only one who did. Had I said, hey... Do you want to come jump in the pool with me? Do you want a cold glass of ice water? Doesn't that sound really great? I would have gotten, mm, I guess. Uh, I'm okay. I'll pass. Maybe next time. My laboring is the only thing that, had, that gave me any interest in actually resting. And the same thing happens with our souls. It's only when you labor and you're heavy laden under the burden of your own sin that you actually have any interest in resting from it. If you consider, for example, Pilgrim or Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, it's a fantastic book. I would definitely recommend it. It's by John Bunyan. One of the best books ever written, in my opinion. Christian, he finds this book. He's living his day-to-day life. He's totally fine. No problems. But he finds this book and he starts reading it. And this book starts telling him of these problems. These things that are wrong, like inherently with him. He has these issues. And he can't fix them. And so as he begins to read, and as he continues to read, and as he keeps trying to go about his day-to-day life, this burden on his back, literally a physical sack, grows on his back, and he cannot move. Like, he cannot go about his day-to-day life because he has this giant burden. And no one else can see it, and everyone thinks he's crazy. But he says, I have this burden on my back. What must I do? And finally, someone comes and tells him, go, flee to Christ. He will take this burden from you. And so he does. He begins to walk this road, and he goes along, and The point is, Christian was the only one who could actually feel the weight of that burden. Why? Because he was the only one who was aware of his sin. sin. He was the only one who recognized his sin, God's holiness, his heart broke for it, and he was meek before God. Everyone else thought he was absolutely insane to go after Christ, to run after the pearly gates. Everyone thought he was crazy. Because they have no interest in this rest, because they do not labor. Christ promises rest to those who labor because those who don't labor have absolutely no interest in it. Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, Those whose consciences are distressed by their exposure to eternal death and who are inwardly so pressed down by their miseries that they faint. For this very fainting Prepares them for receiving his grace. That's what Jesus means. Labor and heavy laden, those are the people who I want to come to me, because those are the only people who will have any interest in my rest. Whoa. Moving on to verse 29. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Immediately Jesus introduces a paradox I could not get past this for the longest time. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. I'm learning that in scripture when you see something that looks like a paradox which is two things that seem to be like contradictory they can't coincide they can't both be true right a can't be A and non-A at the same time. When you see something that looks contradictory in Scripture, oftentimes what I'm learning is that you're looking at two things that cannot possibly be separated. For example, grace and works. We're by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Absolutely. Amen. But James tells us that faith without works is dead. Well, how do we interpret that? Well, we know the analogy of the tree. Grace is the root, works are the fruit, etc., What about Jesus' two natures? How can he be both God and man? But he is. And you can't separate the two. He's just God and he's man. How do we understand that? I don't know. It seems contradictory. But what I'm learning in Scripture is that when you see a paradox, you're seeing two things that can't possibly be separated. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then immediately he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is so interesting. Take my yoke upon you. At the risk of explaining the obvious... A yoke is essentially a crossbeam that would be laid on two oxen or perhaps two donkeys or any other kind of animal that would be used to plow a field. And essentially, this rope was tied to a plow. The plow had spikes that would dig into the ground. It would till the soil so that the farmer could come through and plant his seed. So what Jesus is saying here is, here, come to me. If you're laboring and you're heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. And then you're going to put a yoke on and you're going to work. And you're going to work hard. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. Learn from me. Literally, be my disciple. What's interesting about disciples in that day and age was that they were, they more or less filled the role of a servant. They would study under a man, they would follow him around wherever he went, much like Jesus' 12 disciples did, Jesus' 12 apostles, much like they did. They would follow him around. They would learn from him. They would listen to him teach. And in return, he basically could tell them to do whatever he wanted. There were some exceptions, but they were at his beck and call for the most part. And what did they get? Well, they got to study under this great person, this great intellect, this great mind. So what does Jesus say? He says, A, I'm going to give you rest, but hold on. Take my yoke upon you and be my disciple. Elsewhere we read that we are slaves of Christ. Do you see the paradox that I'm getting at here? How is it possibly that Jesus promises us rest, and yet in the very next breath he says, you're going to work and you're going to work hard? How can these two things go together? As we dig into the rest of this passage, we're going to see, and Let me tell you, it is fascinating. So we have yoke, the idea of a yoke, and the idea of being a disciple. So put it together. Essentially, we're going to work, and we're going to work hard. But what's that work actually consist of? Well, she says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That word for is an interesting one. We're all familiar with the word therefore, right? what's said, x is true, now because of this, live this way, or do this, or this is also true, or something. Therefore, essentially means because. Because of this, this, right? 4 is a little bit different. 4 is a little bit different, we'll get into this. 4 means that what's about to be said is explaining what was previously said. So we might say, 4 minus 2 equals 2. Why on earth is that true? 4 minus Here's why this is true. I'm going to explain that statement to you. 2 plus 2 equals 4. So, 4 introduces an explanation. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here's why. Here's why you should learn from me. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And there's two things we need to see in this phrase. Jesus is saying two things to us. First of all, he's presenting kind of his qualifications. The reason he should be allowed to teach you. Why on earth should we go to Christ? I mean, outside of the obvious that you're going to escape eternal damnation. Why should we go to Christ? Why should we learn from Christ? Why should we take his yoke upon us? Is there any incentive here? Well, let's start with his qualifications. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is only place in all four Gospels where Jesus explicitly states, this is what my heart is. This is what is in my heart. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus' heart. We see it manifested. We see it shown throughout his actions and his words. But the only place in Scripture, in all four Gospels, where Jesus says explicitly, this is what is in my heart, is this passage right here. This passage right here which should tell you something about the importance of the two adjectives he uses to describe his heart. Gentle and lowly. What's so fascinating about this is completely opposite from what you'll hear from the world today. I'll prove it to you. There's a man who's gained some, a rather large social media following over the past year or so, maybe year and a half. Millionaire, many, many, many times over. Um, Obviously by the world standard is living his best life now. Let's put it that way. And I saw a video of him a couple of months ago. He said, I'm going to paraphrase this. It's not exact, but he said, if you walk around like you are the king of the world, your life will not be worse. His point was, if you walk around like you are just the man, the best thing since sliced bread, if you own the place, you walk around like you own the place, your life will be much, much better. Walk around like you are the greatest thing God has gifted this world with and people are going to treat you a lot differently and your life is going to be a heck of a lot better. That was his point. Says so you walk around like that, watch. It'll work out for you. Everything will be okay. Your life's going to get a lot better. Jordan Peterson, world-renowned clinical psychologist, best-selling author. His book called 12 Rules for Life. And in those rules, he has a few different ones. Uh, one of them is do not lie or at least, uh, what is it, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Something like that. Uh, one of them is anytime you see a cat on the street, stop to pet it. And I think it's basically and along the lines of stop to smell the roses. So he has some good stuff in there. But one of them is really interesting. He says, walk with your head held high and your shoulders back. He says, don't slouch over. Walk upright with your head high, chest out, shoulders back. And he gives two very interesting reasons. First of all, what happens when you do that is it immediately triggers a chemical response in your brain. And that chemical response boosts your confidence. So just stop and take a second to appreciate what he's saying here. Act like you are confident and like you have it all together, and you're going to start actually feeling like you have it all together. And then he gives a second reason. He says, if you walk upright... You look like you have it all together. You look like you know what you're doing. People are going to think you know what you're doing, and they're going to treat you with a whole lot more respect. And therefore, because people treat you with more respect, you're going to start feeling more confident. Right? Because your status, so to speak, your public image is going up. Just your frame of mind is going to go up, too. So you've heard of like a downwards, downward spiral? It's kind of like the opposite. Stand up straight. Pull your shoulders back. People are going to treat you better. You're going to feel better. Life's going to be great. right? You're going to be confident. You're going to walk around like you own the place. I am not here to make any moral judgments on any of this advice. I am not here to say, that's wrong, that's bad. I'm just here to say, the one place Jesus says, this is what is in my heart, he says exactly the opposite. He says, in my heart, actually, is gentleness and lowliness. The one place... Jesus says, this is my heart for sinners who come to me. The one place Jesus explicitly says, here's my heart for unbelievers who want to come to me, who labor and are heavy laden. What does he say? He says the exact opposite of what you'll hear from the world today. Exactly the opposite. So again, I'm not here to make any judgments on that advice. I'm here to say that if it were really that important that you walk with your shoulders, Jesus might have said something about it the one place he talks about his own attitude, the the way he carries himself. What is in his own heart? It may be good advice. It may even work. I'm not here to dispute that. I'm here to say the one place Jesus talks about his heart, he says exactly the opposite. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. And that is why you should come to Jesus. He presents his qualifications. He says, look, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, you will take my yoke. Yes, you will learn from me. You will be my disciple. But I am gentle and lowly in heart. The second thing we see here, when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, it's not just that Jesus is telling us who he is or what is in his own heart. He's actually also teaching us. He's trying to tell us, if you come to me, you will take this yoke upon you, you will learn from me, you will be my disciple. What is the lesson we are to study then? What is it exactly? If we're to learn from him, what exactly are we to learn? How are we going to improve? How is our life going to be better? What are we going to learn? He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, you will learn to emulate me, and you in turn will be gentle and lowly in heart. And this is one of the ways we start to resolve this paradox. There will be more as we continue, but this is one of the ways we start to resolve this paradox. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, which means we're taking on a master, we're submitting to a master who's gentle and lowly. But it also means that we're learning to be gentle and lowly. And when we learn to be gentle and lowly and humble, submission becomes that much easier and yokes become lighter, burdens become easier, it becomes much easier to submit to other people. When I'm gentle and I'm lowly and I'm humble and I recognize my own sin, my own need for a Savior, it is so much easier to submit to people in authority over me. It is so much easier to submit to God. Because here's the thing, you need God a whole lot more than God needs you. You need God a whole lot more than God needs you. And when you start to recognize that fact, you realize it's in your best interest to do what he says. And not only that, but when you realize that you need God a whole lot more than God needs you, you realize that God didn't need to send his son. All these obstacles we talked about being in between you and Christ, all these sins that stand there mocking you, Why should you come to Christ? Why would he accept you? Christ moved those. And when you realize that he didn't have to, is that not a humbling thought? For some, maybe it stirs you up to pride, like, oh, look, I must be so great. You have a false view of yourself, my friend. You're not recognizing your own sin. When you realize God didn't have to do that, And you truly recognize your sin. You truly realize God's holiness. It's it's incredible how quickly you will be humbled and how easy it is to submit to Christ. So we saw this paradox. How can Christ promise us rest and yet at the same time tell us to work? Well, that's one of the ways. As we become gentle and lowly, it becomes so much easier to work. And the labor doesn't really become labor after a while. Because we love the one administering it. We love the one who is at the head. So Jesus' qualifications are that he's gentle and lowly, but also the lesson he wants to teach us is that he's gentle and lowly. And what does he say is the consequence? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and what are you going to find? End of verse 29. What does he promise to all who will take his yoke and who will learn from him? He says, you will find rest. Here it is. For your souls. And ultimately that, I believe, is how we resolve this paradox. Because when we come to Christ, we're laboring and we're heavy laden. We flee to the cross of Christ. And what happens? Just like Pilgrim, who went to the cross. His burden was unstrapped and it rolled away into a grave, never to be seen again. Just as he came to Christ and his burden was removed, so we come to Christ and our burden is removed. Because we no longer have to labor under our sin. We're no no longer heavy laden by the burden of our sin. When we come to the cross of Christ and his grace and his love shine upon us, our burden rolls away and it's forgotten. And we have rest for our souls. And what does that mean? It means three things. First of all, Rest for our souls means that we have peace with God. We do not need to, as Isaiah did, tremble when we come before God. We don't need to call down a curse upon ourselves. We know we have peace with God. That God Almighty, the creator of the universe, whom we have stabbed in the back thousands of times over, that God has made peace with us. And when we go before him, we do not need to tremble. We do not need to tremble. We do not need to call down a curse upon ourselves. Rather, just the opposite. We can go to the throne room of grace with boldness knowing that he hears us. Because we have been made co-heirs with Christ. Because Christ is our elder brother and he prays for us on our behalf. So one reason or one meaning of this rest that Jesus promises is that we have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer at war with Him. And when we look forward to the day of judgment and we see God sitting upon His throne, calling the people before Him, separating the sheep, from the, land, or the sheep from the goats, casting the wicked into hell, we no longer have to look on that day with dread and worry and anxiety. We can look on that day with joy, awaiting it with hope, knowing that when we stand before God, He will look upon us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because in the blood of Christ, we have peace with God. That's what it means to have rest with God. Secondly, it means that we are freed from the consequences of our sin. And this is intimately tied with the first point. Not only, though, do we have peace with God, but also we're freed from the consequences of our sin. Not only. Do we get to go to God's throne room freely? But we don't have to ever worry about being cast into hell again. These supernatural consequences of our sins, the things we justly earned, the wrath of God being poured upon us for all of eternity, that, we don't have to worry about it anymore. Because we have rest for our souls. When we come to Christ, we have rest for our souls. We have peace with God and we no longer need to worry about the supernatural consequences of our sin. And I'm very careful to say supernatural consequences. Because yes, there are natural consequences still. Yes, there are going to be natural consequences. That much is obvious if you've been alive for any extended period of time. You will understand there are natural consequences to sin. Things just happen. That's kind of the way the world works if you hadn't noticed. ate from the fruit and here we all are. He got kicked out of the garden and he died eventually. So there's still going to be some natural physical consequences. Yes, absolutely. I'm not denying that at all. Yes, 100%. But what does Jesus tell us? We have rest for our souls. And that means those spiritual consequences that when we die and we stand before God, we don't need to worry or concern ourselves about being cast into hell. Because we know and when God says, why should I let you into my kingdom? We have no other plea but the shed blood of Christ. Third and finally, we're freed from the power of sin in our lives. In our natural state, we're a slave to our desires. We're a slave to our base passions and our lusts. Such that, as I said earlier, we cannot even want what is righteous. We don't even look up and we're not attracted by the idea. In fact, we're just like all the people around Christian when he took off running for the gates, saying, you're crazy, turn around, come back, why are you leaving? We're just like all them. We're lost in our sin and we have no idea why we would flee to Christ. Okay, so this pathway has been opened, so what? That means nothing to me. Why? Because I don't labor and I'm not heavy laden. But for those who do, rest for your soul means freedom from the power of sin. That base passion that had a grip on you, that wouldn't let you go, suddenly loosed. And suddenly, we now have the power to actually choose righteousness. Whereas before, we could only choose what was against God. We were always and ever at odds with him. And now in Christ we have rest for our souls in that we are now free to choose righteousness. Now I want to be careful here too. Because there are people who say, well, we're going to have complete perfection, complete sanctification in this life. One day, yes, I agree, we will be completely sanctified. Every tear will be wiped away from our eye. Every sorrow will be done away with. And yes, we will stand before God completely sanctified and we will never sin again. Yes, absolutely. Amen. But if you haven't noticed, the tears haven't been wiped away from our eyes quite yet. And our fleshly sin nature hasn't been completely done away with yet. Yes, it has been nailed to the cross and we no longer need to listen to it, but we still struggle every day against it. That's why Paul exhorts us to run the race with endurance. Run the race that is set before you. He says, I box not as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. So what does it mean to have rest? First, it means we have peace with God. Second, it means we no longer need to fear the spiritual consequences of our sin. And third, it means that sin has lost its power over us and over our lives. you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, he finishes. He says, for... There's that word again. For. He's explaining. Why will you find rest for your souls? Here's why. Pay attention. You want to know why you'll find rest? And here, again, we, we finish resolving this paradox. Here, again, we find the final answer. He says, verse 30, for... You will find rest for your souls. Four. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have the full picture. These three things, they come together and they show us why this isn't such a paradox at all. We're gentle and lowly in heart, so it's easy to submit. We have rest for our souls, so we no longer labor and we're no longer heavy laden. And here he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's such a contrast to 1 Kings chapter 12. Again, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon has passed away and Rehoboam has inherited a portion of the kingdom. First Kings chapter 12 verse 11. The people had come to Rehoboam and they had asked him, hey, look, your father, Solomon, who, by the way, was worth approximately 2.1 to 2.3 trillion dollars. Where do you think that came from? Other nations that he had subjected to Israel and taxes, primarily. Primarily, those were the two things. So, Solomon may have been rich and it may have been a great time to live in Israel, but let's be honest, it was kind of hard on the taxes. And what do these people say? They come to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they say, look, your father, he was hard. He was heavy-handed. Look, he was a little bit harsh at times. It was hard to live under that man. Can you just ease up just a little bit? Just give us a little bit of a break. Have some mercy on us. Have some grace. What does Rehoboam say? 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 11. And now... Whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. The people come to Rehoboam. They say, look, please, we need rest. Rehoboam says, no, in fact, I'm going to make your workload worse. I'm going to add to your yoke. And if my father disciplined you with whips, I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. My little finger, he says earlier, will be thicker than my father's thigh. I want to give you rest. He says, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want with you. You are my subjects. I can rule as I see fit. And there is nothing you can do about it. And what do we see? Well, Rehoboam's end isn't all that pretty. But that's a story for another time. Go read it. It's actually really interesting. Rehoboam doubles down on the already heavy workload. He says, no, I'm not going to give you rest. And so we see these two kings held up in contrast with one another. On the one hand, we have Rehoboam, who when his people came to him and they said, look, we're weary, we're heavy laden, we're laboring, please give us rest. He says, no. I won't give you rest. I will add to your workload. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Unlike the kings of this world, unlike The kings who delight in extortion, tyranny, and abuse of power. Unlike these people, these politicians, these people who have been set in authority, who delight to crush people, delight to crush their fellow men, Jesus says, no, come to me and I will give you rest. And again, let's think about this. This is God Almighty veiled in the human flesh. The one person on earth who possibly could have the right, who could possibly lay claim to that kind of behavior that Rehoboam exhibited, who could possibly say, it is entirely and completely justified for me to double your workload, for me to actually start punishing you with scorpions and not whips, for your yoke to be made heavier. The one person in all of existence who possibly could have laid claim to that. And what does he say? No, actually, I'm gentle. And lowly in heart. And if you will come to me, I will give you rest. And that I think is what's so beautiful about this passage. Because unlike us, Jesus does not begrudgingly forgive people. Jesus doesn't, when you come to him, say, Fine, if I have to. Okay. When he hears the 70 times 7, he doesn't immediately pull out a calculator. That's kind of an us thing, guys. Jesus is entirely different. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. And he delights to give it. It's not an obligation. It's not a burden for him. He delights to give it. Remember, he didn't have to save you. This way that he opened, these obstacles he removed, he didn't have to. He chose to. And he delights to. And when you come to him, he will embrace you. I can't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. Who goes out, squanders his father's wealth. He says, I want my inheritance now before you die. He takes the money, he squanders it. Live in large. He comes back and what does he expect? He expects to find an angry old man who will force him into servitude. He just wants to say, look, just let me eat with the hired hands. That's good enough for me. I know I don't deserve anything from you. Please, let me, just, let me just eat with the hired hands. And what does the father do? father runs to him and embraces him and slaughters the fattened calf on his behalf. He says, look, this, my son, who once was lost and now is found. This, my son, is alive again. And that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't begrudgingly forgive. He delights to forgive, and to pour his grace out upon us. How great and gracious is our Savior. Let's pray.